This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So this is called The Low Spot, and I had a lot of different options for how I would name this one, and for those of you that know me, I'm always thinking about my title, maybe more than I should, but I'm really a title guy. And uh, this particular uh, cover is sort of a little spooky, I have to admit, Uh, but it's a pretty incredible picture for what this message is. You have this hand jutting out of like this muddy pit, and it is crying out for help. And if you saw a hand reaching out in need of help, but it was covered in filth, and it was coming from a hole that had a stench emanating out of it, how many of you really want to reach down and grab that hand? I mean, there's a lot of counsel that we could give to each other, like beware of a hand that stinketh uh, like this, that is muddened like this, because you never know what its intentions are. This hand could grab yours and pull you down with it. And so most common sense would say, walk by that hand, leave that hand be. And yet the message that I'm going to give today is going to call us towards this hand. In fact, to go through life and look for this hand. It is the exact opposite makeup that we naturally possess. We naturally seek convenience and comfort. We do not naturally seek inconvenience and discomfort. And yet the kingdom of heaven is based around a different mentality. It is the mentality of Jesus, or as in Philippians, it says the attitude of Christ or the mind of Christ. Have this mind, this attitude, or these glasses on you. That even though he is high and we are low, and even though he is in the fresh air of heaven, where it smells lovely and fragrant like a a, a flowering meadow, and we are in the garbage pail down here. He is going to see a hand that is sinking in the mire, and he is going to come and engage in our world so that he could rescue it. He is going to go where it stinks. This is a challenge for us, especially in American culture. We really are challenged by this particular concept that I'm going to bring up today. And I don't want to mince words about it. I just want to call a spade a spade. We struggle in this territory. We struggle with self-justification and rationalization to excuse ourselves from the mud and from the filth of this life. I mean, we were born American. It's not our fault. And it's not a criminal activity because we were born in a more comfortable environment. However, most of the world, and I could say it this way, most of the world throughout human history has not lived like we live. We fall, if you're in this country right now, you're one of the top 1% of the most privileged people maybe in world history as far as the convenience and the comfort that you've personally experienced up to this point. And yet we have some kids here that come from very difficult situations in other countries, and here they are, and they, they, they would be considered vulnerable children. And yet even they, because of being able to be a part of the His Little Feet Choir, have tasted comforts and it received uh, pleasures that very few people on earth have ever had. 
We are in the rare few. And as a result of that, we are responsible to have an extra sensitivity. God in heaven is wealthy, if you want to say it that way. It's a strange way to describe our God in heaven. And yet the way he handles his strength and his wealth is very different than the way we naturally do. We hoard, and Jesus extravagantly gives. We preserve our environments of sanitized uh, fragrance. You know, everything is nice and clean. I mean, I am like the classic picture of that. When I remember just having kids, we had the model home always. Our home was clean every day when it was just Leslie and I. We were married 10 years before we had kids. And I prefer it that way, guys. I prefer the model home. I prefer being able to walk in and it always smells good. And then you have even one kid and you got a diaper issue, right? And diapers, I don't know if you've ever smelled a diaper, but they don't smell good. And now you're introducing this into your home environment. And you have to come up with a way of disposing of that. You have to segregate that smell away from you. We spend a lot of energy trying to segregate our life from that which stinks. And it's not a wrong thing. I'm not going to say that the opposite is more true. Like, no, bring in the smell. Let's truck that in. It's just saying our natural disposition is to remove that. And that's actually a good thing because God, for instance, is holy and we are unholy. He is righteous, we are unrighteous, and he has to segregate from that which is unrighteous and unholy in a certain regard. He cannot bring us into his heavenly realm, which is why he came here. So the low spot, that'll make sense as we progress. Ambidextrous Christianity. So I'm doing a series during the week. And by the way, all of you are invited. The students are typically the ones that are here, but you're more than welcome to join in. I think uh, session number seven or episode number seven is on Monday or tomorrow. And I'm going through what's called spiritual lessons from black and white America. And we are touching on issues that are highly uncomfortable. And racial is the first one that comes to your mind if you hear black and white America. And yes, that's part of it but it's through a season of American history from 1914 to 1974, where there's going to be cultural meltdown and we're going to have an embattlement in our country, which leads to what we could call the embattlement of our day. And so you could better understand where we're at today in this country by understanding these 60 years. And I started out that series with something that I said very similar to this. And I said, my desire in handling these issues is I want to be ambidextrous. Ambidextrous means the ability to use both hands. Now, in life, most of us have a tendency to be one-handed. And it's true in almost every area of life, too. For instance, in politics, we say right means conservative and left means liberal. And believe me, most of us are one or the other. We tend to not be in the middle. And one of my desires is as I handle truth in the church is to not just be a conservative to be the predictable voice that's going to say the party line. I want to say what the Bible says. And you know, there are certain things in the Bible that could be translated as liberal. They could. I mean, I know that's to a group that is conservative. That is like heresy uh, right there. And yet there is a bleeding heart of God that is going to emerge where he is going to put a priority on certain people. And he's going to say, no, that is my royalty. I want you to give up for them. It's like, whoa, did he just say that? That is contrary to the system, to the way that it's supposed to work. Our job is to not be Republican or Democrat. Our job is to be like Jesus. Simply put, when we play 
one hand against the other, we end up being imbalanced one way or the other. And so I want to be ambidextrous. And that's the way I'm handling this series. And this message is going to draw on the same challenge. So both hands, right and left. So if you look at right as being solid on truth, the good conservative platform, and then left, soft in heart. See, if you're left in here, if you lean liberal, you appreciate my, my take on that. Because as a conservative, usually that's not the way we would describe the liberal, is that they're just soft in heart. No, they're mushy of brain is the way that most conservatives would describe it, right? And so I'm going to give the positive spin on it, and I'm going to say soft in heart. And then look at this. The right could be firm with scripture. Yes, it's going to be accurate with scripture. And then the left is gentle with impartation because the conservative gets the reputation of coming in and clonking someone on the head. Whereas the, the liberal is going to be so sensitive to the audience. And of course, the conservative is going to say, yeah, so sensitive that you change the truth. And so you have these two sides, but if you learn how to be ambidextrous, they actually both have strength. I'm going to look at this in a different way today. And I'm going to say that the right could be the motivation to seek salvation. When I'm in the world as a good conservative, I'm going to say, all that matters is their soul. I mean, truly, come on, even if I offend them, I want to gain their soul for eternity. And that's a good, good line right there. I mean, everything I just said, you're like, yeah, I'm mad. And yet there's a secondary side to this. We could call it the left side, even though that, that could be arguable, which side these things are. But it's a complementary thing, and that is that when I go into this world and I see someone hungry, I should feed them. When I see them naked, I should clothe them. The conservative gets concerned about social justice. Hey, hey, this isn't about social justice. This is about the gospel. And yet, technically, it's both. Why in the world am I going to leave someone naked and just give them the gospel? Be warm and well-fed, bud. Yeah, I sort of need something else, but thank you. You see, we as the church give what Jesus gave. He doesn't just give you the gospel. He also gives you himself. He doesn't leave you an orphan. He says, it's better to, for you that I go to be with the Father. We're like, how could that be better? Because I'm going to give you something very special. Everything you need for life and godliness. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. He's going to give us everything we practically need to make it through this life. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, it's both and. I read this uh, scripture when I was starting out the series. It's really interesting. This is Moses. They're they're navigating their way to the promised land, but they need to pass through Edom. And Edom has a special place in God's heart, even though they have rejected their descendants of Esau, they're still their family, if you could say it that way. And so God is going to give a special grace towards them. And so Moses, instead of just coming in and clobbering them, is going to ask to pass through their territory. He says this, now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardships that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. And now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. I think that's such a fascinating statement. We're going to take the king's highway. We're not going to go venture off into the right or into the left. This is where most of us struggle. We venture off into the right or into the left. And instead of staying on the king's highway, which is neither right nor left. So I'm going to call this the king's highway. Now, the king's highway in this actual story is just the king of Edom's highway. 
but that's very boring. Okay, to look at it spiritually, there is a king's highway that doesn't go to the right or to the left, and it's the narrow way of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to call that the way of honor, the way of love, the way of Jesus. It's not right or left. One of the diseases I feel that we are suffering under in our country and in our current Christian state is that we have a tendency to put on glasses of conservatism or of liberalism instead of removing both of those and sticking on the glasses of Christ Jesus, the mind, the attitude of Jesus Christ. So the Salvation Army is going to show us this ambidextrous Christianity. Now, for most of you, when you hear the term Salvation Army, you think of a do-gooder organization that stands and rings a bell at Christmas and just rakes it in. We don't know exactly what they do with that money. They're just getting a lot of it, right? And it's not necessarily that impressive of an organization to us anymore. Now, if you were in the organization, I've spoken at multiple Salvation Army uh, you know, gatherings over the years. There are some wonderful people in this, and it's not just dead, uh, but it's lost something that it once had. I'll just put it that way. So I'm not trying to criticize it. I'm just saying it isn't what it once was, because it once was extraordinary. And I mean that. It's one of the most impressive things I have ever studied in my life is the history of the Salvation Army. If there's a family that I've thought, I've thought of these a couple different family structures that it's like, how would I want the Ludies to be? And when I look at the Booth family, William and Catherine and their kids, all the kids want to grow up and do what their parents do. All the kids, even someone who's going to, like a man who's going to marry the daughter of, of the Booths wants to take on the name Booth instead of give the daughter his name. It's like, I want the name Booth. I mean, this is like the regard for this family was so high and all the kids are going to go into radical Christian ministry. It's like, whoa, how did they do that? Well, I'm going to give you a little taste of it. And all I can say is this is what I've esteemed for so long in my life. That doesn't mean I'm living it. And I want the fresh brush of truth against my soul to nudge me. Leslie and I fell in love talking about the poor and the least. That's how we fell in love. And then we had a resurgence of that in our life, and we ended up adopting four kids, right? There's different movements of grace, but sometimes I've had a tough time keeping certain things where they can come into my life, and it's not that they leave. You know, logically, theologically, truthfully, I believe it, but I don't have the fire underneath it. It's like having a pan of, you know, beans on the stove, and it's like, yeah, the beans are on the stove, yeah, but they're not heated up anymore. And that's sort of like what it is. It's like, you need to keep this stuff warm. And how, who turned off the oven? I don't know. Maybe we walked through one day and nudged it with our, our hip and it turned it off. I, how does this happen that we lose our fervor in spots in our life that we know are true, but we no longer are burning for it? And so this is one of those messages just to freshly turn on the heat. So the Salvation Army, the beginnings, 1865. Listen to this description. One memorable day in July, 1865, after exploring the streets in an East End district where he was to conduct a mission, speaking of William Booth, the terrible poverty, vice, and degradation of these needy people struck home to his heart. He arrived at his Hammersmith home just before midnight and greeted his waiting Catherine with these words, darling, I have found my destiny. She understood him. Together they administered God's grace to God's poor in many places. Now, the Booths lived in West End London. West End London in 1865 was likely the most posh, comfortable place on earth at that time. 
just a little bit, you know, a few miles down the road, you run into something known as East End London. This is like where Jack the Ripper hung out. This is like the most degraded, dismal, dark place on earth. Probably the most impoverished place on earth was a couple miles from the most wealthy. Isn't that ironic? And William Booth is going to venture into East End London and he is going to have the heart of God just burst within him. This is my calling. This is my destiny. It's right here. The mission field is just right down the street. This is what I want to be doing with my life. And that's what he's going to do. He is going to reach East End London. And he's not just going to change East End London. He is going to then take that same attitude to the world. And in the first few years of the Salvation Army, I want you to grip yourself for what I'm about to say, like buckle seatbelts. Over 300,000 people were won for Jesus Christ and came into the kingdom. That is like massive, staggering in a day and an age without modern media. You're going to see this humble little group that is going to go to the lowest, the least, the smelliest, the most drunken, the ones no one wants to be around. And there's going to be an explosion of gospel reaction. So Charles Clark is who I'm quoting from his book, Pioneers of Revival. And he continues, Now they were to spend their lives bringing deliverance to Satan's captives in the evil jungle of London's slums. One day William took Bramwell, his son, so this is his oldest son, into an East End pub which was crammed full of dirty, intoxicated creatures. Okay, let's stop right there. So if I remember correctly, Bramwell was around 11 or 12. And for most of us, if we were going to talk about, you know, wise parenting techniques, we don't think of bringing our son to East End London and then to bring him into a, I mean, we hear the word pub and we think it sounds harmless. I'm trying to think of what would be the equivalent uh, today. And I'm, I'm struggling for a good word, but this is like a raucous bar. This is, this is a place of such filth and immorality and it's full of drunks and He's going to bring his son in there. And then seeing the appalled look on his son's face, he said gently, Bromwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. That, of course, for my parenting has been a big quotation, not because I've known how to apply it. It just sort of lingers there. Like I remember it over and over and over again. Who do I want my kids to live for? I mean, how do I want them to think? How do, who do I want them to go after? What is the orientation of my family? How am I building it? Adopting the East End. So William and Catherine are going to adopt the East End. And then you see him sharing this vision with his kids. I want you to adopt this, the East End of London as well. The East End is filthy. This is the type of thing where they throw the chamber pots out from the upper level onto the street there's filth on the streets. This is, when I say it stinks in East End London, I mean it stinks in East End London. This is disgusting. Most of us wouldn't last very long with our American sensibilities walking even a couple feet into this zone, let alone spending our life day in and day out in this zone. Now, some of us have the notion that when a missionary goes to a place like East End London, that East End London is appreciative. Did you know that East End London didn't want the Salvation Army in it? And they had their rocks 
They had their rotten uh, uh, food and they had other stuff uh, that they were heaping and on top of them as they would walk down the street. As they were praying, they had their brass band. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Salvation Army's beginnings, but they had a brass band and they're going down the streets and they were just mocked and ridiculed. And yet they laughed and they loved when they were hit with something. They responded the way we are trained in scripture to respond and it changed lives. People that are hurling insults and junk at them actually are seeing their response saying, I want what they have. So they weren't warmly welcomed any more than you would think of being warmly welcomed if you started marching down the streets of this culture. And yet some of us have the wrong concept of how this works. Okay, so this statement, by the way, there is always a West End and an East End. In every situation in all of life, there's a West End, which is more comfortable, and there's an East End, which is uncomfortable. So the West End of London was affluent and wealthy. The East End of London was impoverished and dying. The West End of London was comfortable. The East End of London, uncomfortable. The West End of London was convenient. The East End of London, inconvenient. William Booth, Bromwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. So now I'm going to change that quote and I'm going to attribute that quote to Jesus as a creative adaptation of Matthew 25, 37 through 40, which I will get to and I will read that. But I'm going to say that this is the heart of Jesus right here. And that is church. These are our people, the people I want you to live for. And we could say, well, East End London, God, I would go to East End London if it still was around like that. But this is like way back in history. It's like 1865. He's like, I think you missed my point. It's like you go into this culture and there's some debased things going on. There's some really ugly behaviors going on. And you want to picture Jesus with his arm around you saying, you see that? You're like, oh, that's disgusting. These are our people. I want you to live for them. I want you to go after them. Whatever would be shocking in this culture, in the equivalent, is right in the center of God's heart. And that's hard for us, especially in the conservative leaning side of the church, which likes to keep things clean and separate, it's hard for us to comprehend that God would actually want us to go where there's, <clears throat> where there's ugliness and filth and stink. The principle of water. I, I wish I had a demonstration for you up here. I mean, you all know this, but it'd be sort of fun to have some kind of demonstration where maybe like a tube system where I pour water up here and then we have this tube system that goes like this. And you would notice that water is always going to go to the lowest place and it's always going to end up in the low place. It is something that we all know and we've observed our entire life. And sometimes that disturbs us, especially when we have a leak in our upstairs and it ends up in our downstairs, right? It's not always a pleasant uh, reality and factoid about water, but it's a truth. The principle of living water. You see, living water is, it's like God's version of that. You see, God is going to liken what he is going to do inside of us to water. But it's not just any old water. This is life water. This is water that where it goes, it brings life. It brings love. It brings truth. 
And how is that water to behave? Because one of the things we're going to see is that Jesus is going to go out of his way to clarify, anyone who believes on me, I'm going to stick some of this water in them. John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So heart, the, the word, you know, if, if you look at the King James, it's belly, which is very awkward. How do you like that as a translation? Out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. One of my favorite translations for that is innermost. Out of his innermost man. But heart works great for that, right? Jesus is going to have living water gush out of him. Remember when that happened? The cross, the spear of the soldier goes into his side and outflows water and blood. But to the Jew, blood is life. So that's life water right there. And it's in his heart. It's going to flow out and that's going to be the advent of the church of Jesus Christ. That's our beginnings right there. And so we recognize that when we believe in Jesus, he is going to give us something that he calls living water, life water. It's the Holy Spirit is what it is. And then when we are touched, when we engage with this world, that out of us flows this water. And what is the principle of water? It is always going to go to the low place. Living water flows to the lowest place. So when we see Jesus, we're going to see him behave this way. If you were to study the Holy Spirit, you're going to recognize the Holy Spirit does the same thing. It behaves the same way that Jesus does. And that is it always goes to the lowest place. So to those places where people are feeling low, and let me just say it this way, where you are feeling low and when you're feeling low, and even inside of your soul where you have spots that you don't really want to go to, you don't want to touch, they're sort of off limits, where does the Spirit of God go? <laughs> that living water will go right there. It's like, ah, why is he going there? You see, God loves us. And God loves the weakened things. And he desires to see them made strong. It does not mean that we receive it. We'll come up with elaborate dam systems in our life to hinder living water from getting to certain parts of our life. And ironically, people that are living in darkness will create great dam systems to keep this living water from encroaching upon their soul. They don't want it. They don't want it. However, we know they must have it. It flows to the east end for this is where Christ is. If Christ came to this earth in 1865, don't you get the idea that this is a story about him and that he is going to go to East End London? Humility has the same similar quality to water. And that is like water, it always is drawn to the lowest place. And when it comes into a room and there's a table, and there's a low seat and there's a high seat, humility will always choose the low seat. Remember what the name of this message was? The low spot. Humility will seek out the low spot, just like water. The numb church, unable to feel the travesty. There is a travesty in our world today that's hard to put words to. But the suffering in our world is so massive and I would say it's highly likely that even though you've tasted it, have different moments where your heart is, you feel something, it's like, oh, oh, what's that? It's very easy for us to go back to the way we were. Oh, just even minutes later. 
I remember talking, this goes back to a video we created called Depraved Indifference. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen Depraved Indifference. But this goes back when Hudson was five years old. I remember that because that's part of the video. And so, you know, he's 18 now. So 13 years ago, I have this call with a lady in uh, Liberia. And she is describing the orphan crisis in Liberia. And she said, we came over here and we had a house. You know, it's not easy just to get a house, right? And she said, we could fit 17 kids into it. That's a lot of kids, by the way. I don't know if you've ever tried to take care of 17 kids. That's a lot of kids. And after the first month, they had like 25 and they had no room. And so they, but they still had such a need around them. And she said, I was walking down the street today and there's this little four or five-year-old, I don't remember how old uh, he was, maybe Hudson was four, but uh, four-year-old boy sitting on the side of the road, no parents, he'd been sitting there so long, there's no one to help him. He's like, Eric, I don't know what to do. I can't help everyone. I feel totally maxed out. And I'm horrified hearing this. I'm just thinking about this little boy and I'm thinking about how difficult that would be for him and not having a parent to turn to, not having any resource, not having the ability to work, not being able to earn money. And so I'm horrified and, you know, I get off the phone and I'm, oh, that's, that's terrible. And later that day, I mean, we're talking not that long after, I'm back in my groove, working away, and I've totally forgotten about it. And you could say in a, in a nutshell, yeah, American Christianity. We're very good at that. And then that night, in the middle of the night, I wake up. And it's like God is waiting there sort of by me to remind me about that little boy in Liberia. To say, and he, the question was this, what if that was Hudson? And that's all I needed. That's a, that's a profound question, guys. You know that if it's Hudson over there, I'm not going to forget about it. Because what God said in addition to that was, Eric, this is my Hudson. And when you personalize the gospel, when you suddenly recognize that this is very personal to God, that this is his child, then you respond differently. You start to take away that inhuman dimension that we can easily have, and you start to bring the father heart to it. It transforms us. But I would say, in general, I feel like we're struggling with something, and that is that we're numb. Depraved indifference, by definition, it actually was a chart, a murder charge that could have, say you're in a park on a park bench and someone is in the, the lake in front of the park and they're drowning and they're crying out for help and you do nothing. You could help, but you do nothing. You know, that was actually called depraved indifference. You're showing an indifference to this. It's a sign of your depravity and it's a, a murder charge against you. And you're like, I didn't cause them to drown. Yeah, but you did nothing to rescue uh, whoa. I mean, how do we even swallow that? I mean, the amount of depraved indifference just in this room is off the charts. We are extremely vulnerable to numbing over and no longer feeling what God feels. We're unable to feel the travesty. I'm going to call it the blind spot of conservatism. We're right. Oh yeah, we got our doctrine down just right. And yet we can be wrong. The Pharisees were right. They had their doctrine on. They knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. They had that figured out. They knew these things. And yet they were wrong and they crucified the Messiah. I do not want to be the Pharisees. 
I want to be the living church of Jesus Christ that honors Christ instead of crucifies. And so here's where I think we're vulnerable of being wrong. That we are unable to see that our antagonists today are our very mission field. You know that there are a lot of people out there that have been hurt by the church of Jesus Christ, and they are responding towards the church with vigorous anger, hurt. They've been traumatized. I'm not just saying by the church. I'm just saying they've been traumatized. But the church is one of the leading um, problems in our day because it has not been healthy. If you grow grow up in a home where you are abused, and yet that pastor or that dad of yours is a pastor, you know, you can just imagine how well that is going to sit with your soul. And so we have a distortion that we have grown up around in our culture, and it's created movements that are very hostile to what we stand for and we represent. But instead of seeing that this is someone who is hurting on the inside, someone who has felt rejected, someone who is traumatized, someone who is abused, and having actually compassion for them, we have a tendency to treat them as arch enemy number one, and we desire them to be removed from this country. I, I remember hearing someone say that, you know, if Donald Trump was elected, then, you know, I'm leaving this country. And almost straight across the board in the conservative world, there was a statement like, good riddance, we would love to see you go. This is a common attitude. I remember hearing that Hillary Clinton was sick. This is when she was in her uh, election campaign. And almost straight across the board, almost every single conservative, by the way, Christian, wanted her sickness to lead unto death. I want us to just pause on that and recognize that we could be right and be completely wrong. We're not bearing the heart of God. We're not recognizing this is our mission field. The very people that are coming against us are the very ones we've been assigned to go reach. If you go to another tribe in Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea, and they're headhunters and you show up in their environment and they're marching around you, you know, cooking their fires saying, let's kill them, let's eat them. They're your enemy if you want to say it that way. But why'd you come over there in the first place? To reach them with the gospel. Why is it any different here? Just imagine yourself to be a missionary right here, right now, and the very ones that are hostile against you and want you dead are the very ones that you want to see reached with the gospel. So I gave this illustration before about how you can be right and wrong simultaneously. So it seems like this is the third time I've given it, but I was talking about the religious spirit about three weeks ago. And, you know, I have certain rules for my soul that, you know, if someone's walking down the, the sidewalk, I will get out of my way and let them through. Of course, that's just how I do it. And it's a good rule. And yet, so we're at Disneyland with the family and some family is coming straight for us and we're hogging up the whole sidewalk. And so to solve it, I shove my family off the sidewalk so that this other family can have a clear path. And in trying to be right, I end up being wrong. And it's very easy for us with our rules and with our correct doctrine to actually lose the heart of God in our behavior. The pipe organ. I haven't shared this story for a while, but it's a good one. It's a sad one, but it's a good story. So we're in, uh, it's either Nazi Germany or we're in Holland. I'm not sure which. Uh, I'd had to go back to see if I could get the source on this, but it doesn't matter technically. But there's a church and they are singing their hymns on a Sunday morning. It could have been a Sunday night. 
And so they have the pipe organ playing and everyone's singing their songs. And outside is a train track that goes by this church. And inside of this, uh, well, on this train track is a train and it's all sorts of like cattle cars. So they have the slats that go up and down. And on those cattle cars are Jews. They're being carted away to concentration camps in Germany. And so they're packed so tightly that even if you faint inside because of the heat, the sweltering heat, you stand upright because there's no place to fall. You're just tack, packed that, that tightly. And so you're thirsty, you're hungry, you're scared, and you feel abandoned. Germany was a Christian country, 80% Protestant Christian in which this has happened. And the church would be to the Jew, even though the Jew might disagree with the Christian, they could know that according to the Christian mindset, the biblical framework by which they live, if there was one group of people that should be standing for them right now, it would be the church. So as they see this quaint church coming up and they hear the songs coming out of it, they start screaming for help. They're calling out to the church for help. I get it. You know, if I was in the church and there was some noise going by, trying to focus here, I'm trying to worship Jesus. And what that church did is something that I hope we don't do, even though I feel very vulnerable to doing it. They turned up the volume of the pipe to drown out the sound of the screams. Many of us are very accustomed to reaching out and turning up the volume in our life so that we don't need to listen to the noise out there, that we don't need to hear about the suffering. We don't need to hear about how bad it is because what I can't do anything. Imagine that you're the one Christian in that building. It's like, Hey guys, we need to do something. And they look at you like, good luck. And so you leave the church and you see the train go and you run in front of the tracks and go like this and you're just mowed down. It's like, well, that was effective. See, this is why we don't try and do anything. What are we supposed to do is the very thought that goes through our head, which is why most of us do nothing. And we are so accustomed to doing nothing that it's become part of our culture and a part of our Christian culture. So the pipe organ, one hand on the hymnal, one hand on the volume knob. Visiting Cape Coast Castle. And I'm going to say this, and this will make sense as afterwards. One foot tapping to the beat, one foot beating those that would dare interrupt the sweet praise. Doesn't make a lot of sense to be praising God. Meanwhile, you have something making noise down here that you keep kicking to get it to shut up so that you could better focus on praising God. And so this story is going to come. Sandy McConaughey sent me, it was while I was preparing this message. She sends me a chapter of a book that she has been reading because her heart, she was, she's been listening to the, the series I've been giving, uh, Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. And she's basically saying that something similar is happening inside of her. And it's, I don't have words for it fully, even though you're hearing a lot of words, like I'm talking right now, I've been talking in the series, but I still would say I don't, I'm still looking for my landing place where I can have a clear commission to my own soul of what I'm supposed to do and what we are supposed to do as the church. But it's like, I'm getting closer and closer. And it's like, I know that God has something that he's trying to stir and trying to define within me. And I'm like fighting against the fog of this culture to just go through. It's like, I'm not listening to that anymore. I'm going with Christ on this. I'm going down a narrow way. And so she sends this to me. She's sort of almost like saying, Eric, this is putting language to it for me. 
And so in the middle of doing my sermon, which I don't have a lot of extra time, I, I read this chapter. And I mean, you'll, you'll notice how profoundly this fits in. I, I was already planning on doing it on water going to the lowest place. So now listen to this story. So Diane Langberg says this, while I was in Ghana a couple of years ago for a conference on violence against women and children, we visited Cape Coast Castle. Hundreds of thousands of Africans were forced through its dungeons and through the door of no return onto slave ships. There were five dungeon chambers for males and descending into the darkness to one of those dungeons felt claustrophobic. And, and descending into, those, into the darkness to one of those dungeons felt claustrophobic. 200 men shackled and chained together lived in that dungeon for about three months before being shipped across the Atlantic. We stood in one of the male dungeons, listening in the darkness to the whole horrific story when our guide said this, do you know what is above this dungeon? Our heads shook. The chapel, directly above 200 shackled men, some of them dead, others screaming, all of them sitting in filth, sat God worshipers. They sang, they read the scripture, they prayed, and I suppose took up an offering for those less fortunate. The slaves could hear the service and the worshipers could sometimes hear the slaves, though there were those making them behave so as not to disturb church. It took my breath away. The evil, the suffering, the humiliation, the injustice were overwhelming and the visual parable was stunning. The people in the chapel were numb to the horrific trauma and suffering beneath them. If the living water is truly gushing in the chapel above. So let's, let's put ourselves in the chapel above. If there truly is living water that is gushing out of us, remember, you know, out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. So if there really are rivers of living water gushing, where are they going to go? It would find its way down the smelly dungeon below. Isn't that just reasonable? How could you maintain your Christian witness, your Christian integrity, and have it not actually turn you down into the smelly filth below to say, guys, we have a problem here. Jesus didn't stay upstairs. He ventured down into the stink below. Philippians 2, 7 through 8, he, speaking of Jesus, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Talk about going into the dungeon, guys. Paul didn't stay upstairs. He ventured down into the stink below. Romans 15, 20 through 22. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have also been much hindered from coming to you. You know that it's a big deal if you're going to make a choice to share the gospel with those who have never heard it, as opposed to with those that have. Because where it has never been told, you can only imagine the effects of having the light turned off for a long time. There is a great brutality there. There is a very high level of danger for any person to ever go where Christ has never been named. And yet you're going to see Paul go, I want to go into the dungeon. I want, has anyone gone down there yet? Let me be the first. I want to go to that dungeon. 
Galatians 2.10, they, which is speaking of Peter, James, John, desired only that we, Paul and Barnabas, should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So what are Paul and Barnabas being sent out to do? To share the gospel. They're being commissioned to share the gospel. And yet as they go to share the gospel, they're being told to be ambidextrous. Don't just share the gospel, also reach the poor. If there's something about both hands, don't just sing your songs, go into the dungeon, set the captives free. I used to always say that, you know, there's, there's a process of growth in the Christian life. We start imprisoned in sin. And then Jesus Christ sets us free and we are moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son. We're free. Whoa, I'm free. And we can be then trained Boot camp comes and we're groomed and trained by the Spirit of God to do what? Sounds really strange, guys. But to go back into the dark territory to set others free. You are made strong by Jesus so that you could give that strength to those that don't have it. Our calling is actually to the dungeons of this earth. The low spot. So remember how water always goes to the lowest spot. I guess the question for us is, are you inclined toward that low spot or against that low spot? That's a hard one, even for me to answer, because intellectually, I know the right answer to that one. I mean, if I'm going to give you the right answer, I'm going to say, of course, I'm called to the low spot. Of course, I always want to go to the low spot. It's hard, because what are the ramifications of agreeing with the low spot thinking? Like, well, God, you know, I have, have a family to think of here. I, you know, I'm trying to run a ministry. It's sort of hard to go to the low spot when you're, you know, dealing with a ministry over here. And yet, if I was in that chapel, in that situation, and there were 200 slaves living in their own filth down below, what would I do? It's a good question. We always say, you know, if I lived in the days of Noah, I would have gotten on the ark. If I would lived in Nazi Germany back in that day, I would have done something to help the Jews. Well, if I was in that chapel and I knew there were 200 slaves beneath me, but if you do anything, you could be thrown in with the slaves. This is a stronghold at that time. This is a lot of money represented here, guys. This is a commodity this is valuable. It's like the cocaine trade. You don't just one day wake up when you're in the mob and the mafia and say, you know what? I think cocaine's bad. Well, they'll just kill you, right? This is not easy. What do you do in that moment? I'm not sure, but I know we must do something. I know we must respond and we cannot be silent. Luke 14, 10 through 11. When you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place. Or as Jesus could be saying, behave like water, living water. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So looking for the low spot, I want you to recognize that the Spirit of God is always seeking that place of weakness, that place of oppression, that place of trauma in our lives. He is always going to go to that spot in us. And that's our soul. When living water comes into our soul, when the Spirit of God moves in, in our life, He is going to go to that place of pain. Not because He's just wanting you to feel pain. He's actually wanting to address the pain. It's sort of like pulling out a splinter 
or a thorn. When it is being pulled out, you could accuse the one pulling it out of creating and inflicting pain upon you when in actuality they're rescuing you from it. And that's the way the Spirit of God is. You could accuse him of, you know, going after those hard spots in your life. Yeah, that's because that's what, because he wants to heal those spots. We live in a traumatized world, guys. One out of three women in this world are sexually abused. That is like outrageous. The amount of harm being done towards women in this world today is so off the charts that we just sort of create a callus towards us. Like, eh, you know, I like, guess just the way it is. Well, 150 million orphans, 200 million kids living on the streets, 200 million kids living on the streets. And just because we don't live on the streets, does that mean, oh, well, I'm fine. Or do we recognize that God has set us free? And he's moved us into a kingdom and given us great strength to do what with it? To just sing a song? Turn up the pipe organ? Drown it out? Just make it through this life so we don't need to think about any of these things. Or so that we could respond. He looks for the low spot, not just in our soul, but in our marriage. If there's something that's weak in our marriage, he's going to go there. Our families. In each family, there's probably going to be weak spots. There's going to be low spots. Now, we could complain about those low spots. Say, oh boy, if we didn't have that family member, our family would be great. Remember uh, Otto Koning's famous statement, I'd be a great missionary if, if it wasn't for these, you know, pagan, uh, you know, hedonistic, you know, uh, tribesmen. You know, it's like, I could be great if the people I was trying to reach were better. And yet, God wants to go to that low spot in every zone of our life and say, right here, love, pour out your mercy, pour out your compassion. Our churches, our churches have low spots. Places where we could try and insulate ourselves and go, that has to be someone else's job in the church, not mine. I definitely don't deal with that. Our schools, every place you come into, there's low spots, guys. Water always goes to the low spot. My sister... When she went to public high school, they had foreign students and they had disabled kids there and they had just the off scour. And there's always that off scouring and that never fit into any group and just sort of hang out by themselves. And that was where my sister always went. And it was so embarrassing for me because I was trying to be cool and popular. And my sister was having lunch with the disabled family. You know, it's like, oh, come on. And, you know, people would always make fun of my sister. And yet I look back and I say, okay, like that. Every room my sister goes into, she always goes to the lowest person. She just has a sense for it. Jackie Pollinger, when she came back, she said, when you're around poor, when you're around poverty, you begin to understand the spirit of poverty and you can recognize it a mile away. So when she was in the United States, because she was living in the walled city of Hong Kong for years, she came back to the United States to, to speak. It was really hard for her. Because we looked as American, American Christians, like we were just fat, sitting on our barca lounger with our, uh, our remote controls, just sort of eating away at whatever pleasure we could. She's like, there's a lost and dying world out there. What are you guys doing? And yet she was describing the story of walking into a, a fast food restaurant. And this guy was fairly well-dressed and she knew he didn't have money. It's like she could read it instantly. That man needs, it was like to the low spot. 
And so she came up behind him in line and just said, I'll take care of his. And I don't remember the guy's response. To, to be honest, I don't remember the full story. I just remember that part of it. But I could say like that, where you don't have to, you don't need a lot of nudging from God. You're just ready to go low. Wherever it is, you're always, even if you're in a fast food restaurant in America, you are ready to go where the low spot is. Your work or business, your neighborhood. In our neighborhoods, there's pain and trauma. There's sleepless nights. There's major physical ailments. There is so much drama going on that we close our doors to and we don't want to see technically. And yet if we allowed God to take us to those low spots, what would we find? Well, how about our culture? Wow, are we willing to go to the low spots in our culture? There's a lot of junk out there. We spend most of our time complaining about the degradation of our culture and how if we had our way, we would do this with our culture. Instead of recognizing that there's a hurting world out there. Stop looking at this politically. Look at it as a Christian first and foremost. Our world. The low spots in our world. And how about this? The room you are walking, you are in or walking into right now. So we just happen to be in church. We just talked about church. But when you have this attitude where every room you enter into, you recognize there are low spots. And what is your assignment? To be Jesus in that room. Diane Langberg said this, it is not just over there. It is here in our own streets and cities, in your city. The dungeons are here, sometimes sitting next to us. They result in traumatized human beings. The dungeons of this world are filled with traumatized people. She made this statement, and I, I've been pondering and just chewing on it. And that is this, the trauma of this world is one of the primary mission fields of the 21st century. You don't need to go, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't go overseas, but I'm saying you don't need to go far to find someone that's been traumatized, someone that's been deeply injured, someone that is deeply hurt to the point that they can't see truth, they can't receive love, they can't receive mercy anymore. They are inflicting pain upon themselves or wanting to inflict it upon others. And this, imagine if we were to translate this into a mission field and we were to say, Lord Jesus, help me help them. Wormbrand's plea. So Richard Wormbrand, when he heard that Nikolai Ceausescu, who had done some of the most heinous, horrible things to the people of Romania, he was Stalin's puppet under the communist regime. And he had abused and killed and imprisoned, I mean, just countless thousands of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And he'd just been a butcher in this country. I mean, if there was ever a guy that should just be killed, it's Nikolai Ceausescu. Richard Wormbrandt, I believe at the time, was in prison. And he is going to plead with the Church of Jesus Christ when he hears what they're going to do. Plead with them to show him mercy. Says he's just a little boy that didn't have a father, that never received love. So that's his, his perspective. Now that's, talk about messing with your politics when you're dealing with someone like Nikolai Ceausescu. It's like, ah, uh, we can't just let the guy go because he didn't have a father, right? He really did bad things. But you see Richard Wormrand first and foremost functioning, not politically, but as a Christian. And that's his job as a pastor. His job isn't to tell the government what to do. His job is to tell the church how to respond towards Nikolai Ceausescu. Forgive him, love him. Show him compassion. 
And so his statement, don't harm him. They did, by the way. They harmed him. They didn't listen. We're going to finish with this. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. So it's, it might sound strange to say that Leslie and I fell in love around this scripture. We fell in love around a piano writing songs. We fell in love around a topic of God's heart for the weak. And so we wrote a song. This is before we were married, I believe, called Matthew 25, 40. I'm not going to, we're not going to sing it today. Just, I don't want you to get any ideas on that. But every time I get close to this scripture, it brings such a unique impact upon my life because it's, it, it has something with it that God has done in my life. And it's a hard scripture to always know how to apply because when it talks about naked, you know, clothe them, it's like, well, most of us are not running into naked people, okay? It isn't the most common thing. So we oftentimes don't understand how to apply the breakdown of culture in that day to how we deal with those that are hurt today. But there's a simple translation into our tongue today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in a prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's a heavy duty scripture. And it should cause us to gulp. And it does not mean that we are suddenly goats because we haven't fully known how to respond to this. I've oftentimes said that you measure the health of a Christian not always by what they've done up to this exact moment, but what they do when they're convicted, when they see what they ought to do. Because he who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. But he who knows what he ought to do and then does it, that's what we do as, as believers. When you know what you ought to do, do it. Now, if you can tell by even how I'm giving this message, and if you said, Eric, what's your action plan? Ah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this affects the global side of things, like a ministry like Ellerslie or a church. Ah, I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure out how to apply it right here in my own soul, in my marriage, 
in my family, then in this church, then in this ministry, then in this community. This is the burden I have. I want to start going to the low spot every time, every turn. I've had seasons in my life where that's just what I do. That's what defines me. And then I can accidentally bump with my hip that controller on the stove that turns down the heat. I mean, how did that get turned down? Did I actually come in and go, I would like that turned down. I don't think I ever willfully said I'd like to turn down the heat. Just somehow it went down. And when I see a scripture like that, I go, I think something's gotten turned down. Something's off. Lord Jesus, heat this back up. I don't want to just theologically be correct. I don't want to be a Pharisee. I want to be a Christian. I don't want to just have the right answer. I want to have the right life. So Lord, right here, start in me. Father, start in us. Work this into us. Lord, when we see the stink, we see that hand reaching up out of the mud hole. May we not shy away, but may we look for it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us a radar to see those that are in that low position and that we would be willing to get dirty and get smelly to reach them. Lord Jesus, show us the Jesus pattern. How does this work? What does this look like? Lord, we want living water in us and we want it flowing out of us and we want to behave in agreement with your pattern. Lord, we need you to do this. We love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.